Previously on the Civic Tech in Africa podcast. Al Keggs is my guest today. Al Keggs is a marketing and communications expert, serial entrepreneur, and a champion of government openness through data. I think I would be right to say that it's not enough to say I have an app and put it out there as a developer of an app. It's important yes. to do the groundwork and go to the ground, you know, to, to community-based organizations and engage with these people that you, your target audience, I suppose. There are two things I want to say. One is that the bar- one of the other barriers to usage of apps is language. Right. Most of us build our apps in English. In Africa, we don't speak English. In fact, even when we speak English, it isn't really English. If we don't take those nuances into consideration when we are writing uh, the language of our apps, then you find that there's still a gap. To listen to this episode and more, find the Civic Tech in Africa podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vids. Welcome to another edition of the Civic Tech in Africa podcast. My name is Natim Tegu, and we're so glad to have you join us again for this episode. Today, we're talking public participation and specifically about how Dear South Africa, also known as DSA, is influencing public participation through their online platform. And to talk to us about this is Chloe Castle, who is the operations director at DSA. DSA is a nonprofit organization that facilitates public participation to help shape legislative policy at a municipal, provincial, and national level. Chloe, nice for you to join us today. How are you doing? Hi, Nati. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm doing well, thanks to you. I'm doing well, thank you. So we're going we're gonna to talk DSA, and, and for me, I'm very interested, and I, I, I suppose when I was doing some research, the very beginning of this particular platform began during the ETOLs. When did you guys start with the platform? Sure. So we began around 2018. Um, and it was actually started as a bit of a passion project, obviously being operating in a civil society space. Um, you know, we have certain constraints with within different communities, districts, you know, and obviously our, our legislation um, can either make or break those problems that we face. So we started in 2018 and it, it's initially started, um, was founded by Rob Hutchinson, who uh, was actually part of Outer who was the organization that um, addressed the ETOL saga at that stage. And then um, Rob moved away in, a, in, in a, his personal capacity, started Dear South Africa. When I was reading about that, but, you know, the, that whole ETOL um, crisis, so the, the, the idea that I know that, that we have people who are listening to this who don't know what the ETOL is, right? Can you tell us about what, what, what the problem with that ETOL process of starting that ETOL process and charging people for, you know, <laughs> driving on the freeway? What was that about and what was wrong with it at the time? Sure. So um, I think I'm a little bit extending speaking on behalf of under the outer umbrella, but yes. um, just to, to give some clarity <laughs> to the big, no, no, it's perfect. I think context is always valuable. Yeah. Um, so the ETOL campaign was obviously those gantry tolls set up over the, the main highway routes within Gauteng. And with that, you know, every time you would drive under, it would pick up your license disc and you would be billed a fee for the certain stretch of road that you've utilized. And within that, it was set up uh, by Sanrail and it was um, an, an initiative, if you want to call it that, or a project driven by government. And within that, I think, you know, the, the public outcry came from the fact that um, a lot of the billing and stuff, there were many inaccuracies 
Mm. Um, a lot of the costs were quite exorbitant. There was no consultation taken through on the, the public participation regarding this project. You know, and the, one can understand it affected quite a lot of people and it's affecting a person in their pockets where we already pay for, you know, our car vehicle licenses, driver's licenses, all of those fees, you know, have been structured into a fund to be able to look after our roads. So the necessity for an additional fund collection mechanism didn't make sense. Um, you know, we've also got our, our national toll routes. So it just, it was a bit of an exploitation of the, the consumer at the end of the day in terms of another road traffic tax yeah. at that stage. Would you, would you say that the problem at the beginning was that people were not you know, properly consulted? I think so. In terms of that whole project sort of blooming up overnight, it was a very costly, expensive project. Um, and people weren't aware of how it would affect them. There was no rate or tariff deliberation or consultation. So I think that caused a quite a big uh, fall down between government and the public sector. Right. The issue that you're trying to resolve as DSA is that the lack of public participation in, in, in processes of policymaking. That's correct. So I think in terms of the, you know, DRSA then went and sort of um, found its individual legs outside of Alta um, on another campaign, which is actually the Electoral Act. Um, and there was also the um, land expropriation without compensation bill, which, you know, I think we, we learned through those two campaigns as well as with ETOL. You know, without uh, the public participation process, it's a valuable process and it's legislated for a reason that it's it's needed within our democratic system. Um, you know, the, the collection of feedback from different sectors of the public is critical to form the right policy. Uh, because without that, I think it's it's quite evident. You can see where it will only sort of aid and abate certain parts of the public, it may even, the sectors may even include that it only benefits governments. Um, you know, there's different scenarios. So the public participation is quite a critical process mm. um, and it needs to be transparently reported, you know, not sort of, um, you know, feedback kept behind closed doors. I think that's that's where DRSA's successes come in. And I like how you make the difference between uh, your platform not being a petition platform, but being a, an, an, an input sort of platform where all kinds of views are accommodated and, and, and I suppose brought to the legislative process, right? What's, what's the difference between a petition and, and, and input? Maybe start there and why input is better than petition. Sure, thanks. That's a great question because it, it does often get confused, you know, one with another. And I think there's there's a place for each of them. Um, so in terms of, you know, taking it back to our democratic system within South Africa, we have got a, a legislated obligation that with all legislative changes, the bill must be, the draft bill must be presented um, before it's obviously approved. And that needs to be presented either through, I know they used to do it through the newspaper. Um, there weren't too many channels. So to reach the public, you know, we've, we've got some constraints. And within that, it wasn't also sort of highly publicized. So if you saw it, you saw it and you could deliver your comments. And, you know, there may have been some other civil society groups that were also distributing, um, you know, items which are relative to their cause, which is great. I think um, it's, it's very beneficial. And within that, you know, you've then got the obligation as the, or you've got the opportunity, not the obligation, 
as a you know member of society to either go and put your comment forward or not and you can write you know in the olden days and i say olden days in inverted commas the the pre-dsa days it was a matter of you writing your email through and you know your comment would then be delivered to that particular draft bill and within that process your if if you now Nati had to go and send your comment, you said you agreed or you didn't, or you know, you had your view on this particular matter, it would be recorded by the relevant secretary that's that's running that draft bill. And you know, that would in a perfect world be considered on an individual basis. So within that, that consultation process is what public participation is. But the difference with a petition is that you would be collecting, say, 300,000 signatures to all sort of say the same thing. So it ends up being one delivery. So, you know, these these different calls for requirement where if you have a campaign, you know, maybe the legislation's already enforced and you're trying to, uh, I say revolt, but in a in a softer way, revolt that, that legislation, you want to do a mass impact. Mm-hmm. You know, a petition is more beneficial for an environment like that. Whereas, you know, public participation, one-on-one delivery, where, you know, now the process at DRSA is followed, where we deliver your comment to the end destination and also provide a track record transparency and reporting on it. I think that is where, you know, we get a lot of one-on-one value with the different bill and how it will affect different sectors of society. I mean, I, I, I know traditionally there is, um, there's been you know, in-person public participation. And, yes, and yes. Your, your sort of platform is a, an online platform where people put in their views about a particular policy that's being suggested or, you know, or, or being put forward for people to comment on. I'd like to make the difference between the two, right? That public participation perhaps is, is not just, I'm going to say a thing and then, you know, uh, in-person public participation is saying we're going to sometimes people debate about things there's an opportunity for debate and and perhaps a um a popular opinion comes out whereas online participation is saying okay this is my view do you guys then streamline that stuff and go like this is the popular opinion from what the online people are saying so does it work in the same way that public participation would work Yes, yes. So um, I think that's that's actually quite critical because we do still have in public, um, or sorry, rather in person deliveries, and I mean you can still deliver entries via fax and things like that. It's it's available. Mm. Um, it just obviously makes it difficult to to track um, and and see that your entry has been recorded because you don't you know typically don't receive a receipt or something along those lines. And we've also encountered it where you know, there were some popular campaigns and we, we flooded email servers because that was obviously one of the channels, um, you know, and if in that event, an email server can crash and, you know, you need to have that uh, restoration process. So it helps having DRSA as the conduit because obviously we do have backups and um, form a, a secondary sort of folder line, if I can say that, if it's needed. And um, in terms of the in-person delivery that is, it's very important to debate the the certain topics that are coming up. And I think it's very similarly applied with online. So you'll notice with each campaign, um, there will be certain what we call top concerns that are identified. So even prior to, and obviously it's not only limited to that, you could still select 
other as an example if you didn't agree with any of the the above mm. but they're generally based and ring fenced on the contents of the bill so if it was for example a tariff hike um you know with escom for ex- as an as an example just because that is such a current topic <laughs> if we if we had to say you know was it the top concern that the increase was too much was your top concern load shedding was your top concern mismanagement and corruption or you know there, there's different um, categories within that and you can see so obviously i have um, compiled a lot of reports post campaign and you can identify quite clearly um, the the trends that come through. So you know whether it's it, it's not each comment is obviously identical, and that's what we want. We don't want it to be identical, but you can still pick up these different themes of concern, which are then consolidated and get further deliberated with the panel um, and the parliamentary group that's relevant to to sort of unpack these different themes and come with solutions, you know, if there are critical problems, which may result in an amendment on the, you know, the legislation if that's um, called for. Which end of the policymaking process would you say DSA finds itself? Are you right at the beginning of the policy or afterwards where you're saying now you're looking for opinions of people about the policy once it's been implemented? Um, so in terms of DSA's position it can take two different stances but i'd say the more common and and more um sort of day-to-day stance that we take is where we've got legislation that's coming in so all draft type legislation um because obviously legislation that's already in force is very costly to try and change um in terms of court proceeding proceedings and procedures so it's i think from a draft legislation we try and address that formation at at source because it's a bit more effective than trying to tackle um you know legislation that's already been signed in but need you know saying that it, it needs to also be noted that you know like covid we we did go to court against that as well mm. um and it did cost a fair penny but it was something that was you know a situation where we were dealing with legislation that had already been approved Right, um, right. So that was quite a long process as well, whereas draft bills are a bit more amenable and flexible to work on. Right. Would you find more success with the drafting or uh, afterwards when you're now evaluating the, the policies? Um, I think that's a great question, actually, Nazi, because the draft bills definitely seem to show more success. Um, but that being said, I think if you've got sufficient funds and a genuine um standing in in what you're trying to amend you will still be able to achieve this in in any existing legislation but it obviously needs to be just it needs to be thorough and it needs to be taken to court you know with necessary parties um that makes sense mm. i think that's that's quite important and often there what you know in certain situations like that DSA can run campaigns um, and it may even be with other uh, civil society partners, if you know they're seeking to change a certain part of legislation, whatever it may be, um, you know we may go and open it to the public first, get comments, get their findings, and then form that as part of the basis for the court papers. So you know, just allowing enough time and, and information to circulate um, is also quite critical as part of that process. I imagine that there are people on the continent and elsewhere. Uh, who may be interested in opening platforms like this, like uh, that that's you know comment on on legislation before it goes or go on the other end as well once the legislation's up, 
people might comment on those things. Uh, what would you say besides the financial aspects that, that you, you, you probably alluded to now uh, are some of the challenges that you face as a, as a platform? So I think as a platform, you know, you we, we still operate as a nonprofit as an example. So we, we serve as the conduit. We don't, I think one of the challenges is you're dealing with very highly emotive topics. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's the one thing I actually love about the South African culture because there is such a lot of fashion, uh, but it's difficult to talk about problems. You know, it's in that sense where you, you're facing them head on. And, you know, Derry say serving as a conduit, we're on, we're nonpartisan. And that's probably quite a challenge in itself because you, you know, you don't want to be fighting government or fighting um, the public sector. Mm. Um, so the neutrality is, is important. Um, and although I say it's a challenge, I think it's something we've definitely achieved and um, we, we are getting better and better at it. And I think in terms of, and I think that's also where the success lies in that we don't interfere, you know, it is very much a freedom of speech um, principle. Mm -hmm. And I think the other challenge that we do face um, is expanding our reach. Uh, this is something we've been obviously working toward on for, you know, for a few years now in terms of our projects. Um, you know, we've, we've got an online following of, of considerable size, but, you know, we also want to be able to reach the more outlying areas we want to be able to um, make sort of access to the digital platform a no-cost type of situation because I think that project in itself would enable a lot more people to to put their comments forward um, and also to be able to do it in any language because we are so multi um, sort of linguistic in that sense in in South Africa which was is something it's something we're working towards. And, you know, we want to encompass the collaboration on that as well. And I know recently you launched a campaign, the I Am Active campaign. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, that's a great campaign. That's actually a campaign that we've been concurrently running alongside all other legislative changes. But I Am Active is a segmented campaign it's it's always running never closes for design for municipalities or communities to address located issues so so if you've got um you know a certain municipality where there's been an issue whether it's um education whether you know it can be any sector that needs to be addressed that can then come through that we can then assist that community identify obviously we can't resolve all problems through public participation but where we can you know we will put these through and develop the campaign let it go out for comment within that community and then present that result and that report through to the um, local municipal members or whoever's obviously involved and then from there we can start working on solutions um, it does get tricky because sometimes it's uh, it's not always possible to solve with public participation. But when there's bylaws and things like that, it's definitely something we um, can tackle. So I'm active has actually run campaigns over many many communities um, across South Africa. It wasn't it you know it hasn't been ring fenced at all, which is great. Nice. Speak about those communities. I mean, what, what sort of impact are you seeing in terms of uptake from the community um, participating on these platforms? What, what, what sort of impact um, have you seen over the last couple of years? So interestingly, um, certain provinces will have a leading response rate 
um, and other response, other provinces, sorry, their response rates, it's quite low. And it's a quite a clear indicator because obviously where response is low, success is low. But where response is growing and it's sort of top of mind, you know, we see great, great comeback from that. So Cape Town is one of the regions where we've done some of these campaigns. Um, there were some bylaws that communities were trying to sort of attack and address in a in a more constructive way. And that, that ended up being quite a successful delivery. That was, uh, we managed to get good comments. We managed to get um, actually some adjustments. It wasn't um, too great in terms of uh, not adjusting legislation, like turning it on, on its head kind of thing. It was a matter of adjustments to legislation and bylaws. Um, a lot of these did actually take place quite a while ago. So I would need to revisit <laughs> the, the finer details to see exactly what it was. But um, I think we've also had a couple of other attempts in, you know, like now, for example, KwaZulu-Natal is also a province that, that responds quite well. But we had a really, really small community there that needed assistance with, um, it was to do with the, the game farm management. Um, there was some illegal activity happening there. And that actually was a difficult one to manage because it was so small um, in terms of community size that to try and get people to come in to participate in the campaign, it was sort of falling short. Um, and it was not necessarily a public participation issue in some spheres. So I think the understanding was also a bit of a challenge, you know, whereas if I think you set up your campaign with a clear understanding of what you need to achieve and you keep it simple, I think that's where we, we see a lot more return and success for the communities. Would you say then, I just pick up from what you said just now, do you have more success tackling the more local stuff, the more local municipal policies than you, you would have with the national, national level uh, sort of policy making? Uh, I think we've had, we've been fortunate to have, uh, you know, wins on both sides. Yeah. Besides of that, I think um, the national legislation does take a bit more refining because you you obviously don't want to take on a, a stance that's that's not relevant to, to national legislation. But that being said, I mean, we've had some really, really big wins in the sense of that uh, land expropriation without compensation that was a campaign that ran for like three years and was probably one of the biggest that we've run um, and generated hundreds of thousands of responses and I think that was you know that was highly successful but it took a lot of constant you know energy and, and applying new feedback to it and growing that campaign whereas I think the the local um campaigns we, we've also had some some wins on that side but what we, we see some challenge with the local campaigns is maybe there's a funding issue or a resource issue um, and there, there's some problems that we just can't resolve on that level you know it's it's public participation can sort of go to a point and when you sort of need to get to the point of heading to court or something you know obviously dealing with a, a smaller community and funding does become a bit of a constraint there. Mm. Whereas national, you know, it's it's got a bigger audience. You're more likely to to be able to collect funds for litigation if necessary. 
That's very, very interesting. Chloe, I've, I've uh, enjoyed having you here. And, um, but just one last thing, I mean, what, what, what word of advice would you say to, to entrepreneurs, uh, social entrepreneurs who are trying to start up uh, organizations like nonprofits like this, you know, that are very uh, community-based and trying to impact communities? Because uh, I imagine some people are, very, are struggling, like you said, with funding, funding their, their enterprises and having the sort of impact that they want to have, particularly on the local level. What sort of advice would you give to those people? Oh, Nazi. Firstly, I think my my word of advice would be go for it and don't stop until you've achieved what you what you set out to. Yeah. Um, because I'm a huge fan of that sort of stimulation. I think on the ground, community based organisations, small business, it's definitely it's a tough place to be, mm. but it's definitely something for the long run, and it's it's where the impact sits, um, in my personal opinion. And I think. When it comes to starting out, trying to find your feet, it is a challenge. And the first two years, and I think maybe even more at times, can be really challenging. But that being said, um, my, my sort of recipe to success or, or advice, I think, would be always seek collaboration and partnership where you can. You don't need to do everything on your own. It just makes it that much harder. And I think, you know, we're all trying to, achieve similar goals in society in the society space so we need to to align i think that's that's where the first strength comes um the other thing is to diversify income mm-hmm. for these because obviously income is important for continuation and sustainability so you know if you can diversify your income whether you make it a hybrid of um, a membership base or um, community groups or small business or corporate business or even funding for NGOs, I would definitely recommend that individuals look at that if they are seeking that um, the road to development. It will it will serve in the long run um, and where you maybe not getting, you know, maybe South Africa has a difficult economic climate, membership is tough, at least there's a funding opportunity to fall back on so your project doesn't stagnate. Uh, how do people find you? How do people find DSA and how do they participate? Thanks, Nancy. We are online. We've got our website. Um, we are dearsouthafrica.co.za. And we are actually recently, uh, we've been working very tirelessly on a, a new campaign builder and project and look and identity. So we will be moving to a .com um, URL as well in time, but we'll release that. It is sort of up and, and running at the moment, but just, uh, you know, more as a its foundational phase. So for now, we, we are on dsouthafrica.co.za. Thank you so much. So we're going to put up all those details uh, in the on the podcast. Uh, so do check it out. Um, and uh, thank you so much, Chloe, for joining us. Amazing. Thank you so much, Nati. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And we appreciate your support and wish you all the best with your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vids.